Good morning, New Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church of Newark, Delaware, the place where love abides. My name is Deacon Dylan, and I will be doing lesson number 10 in our Union Gospel Press. I should say the place where love abides, where our pastor is Dontel A. Hall's senior. My name is Deacon Dylan, and I will be doing uh, lesson 10, I'm sorry, lesson 6 in our uh, Union Gospel Press. The title of our lesson is God Sends Quail and Plague. God Sends Quail and Plague. We're going to be looking at uh, the scriptures in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verses 24 to 35. The book of Numbers, chapter 11, verses 24 to 35. Uh, There are some related scriptures, the book of Psalms, or the book of Psalm 105th chapter, verses 3741, the 78th chapter, verses 18 to 31, and Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. Um, the time is about 1444 BC. The children of Israel are still in the desert of Paran, and this is a continuation of our last week's lesson. Um, where the people were complaining about manna. So I'm going to start reading our scripture lesson. Numbers chapter 11, verse 24, and it reads, And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the spirit rested upon them and they were of them that were written, but went not out unto the tabernacle. And they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses And said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord, Moses forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses got him into the camp, and he he and the elders of Israel. And there went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quails from the sea and let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side, as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. And the people stood up all that day and all that night And all the next day, and and they gathered the quails, and they gathered least, and he that gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. And he called the name of that place Kabroth. Hatava, because they buried there, they buried the people that lusted. Mm. And the people journeyed 
from Kibroth Hatafa unto Hazaroth and abode at Hazaroth. All right. Mm. Let's get into it. Uh, the first section says Moses obeys the Lord. Moses obeys the Lord. After Moses voiced his displeasure with God, as we studied in last week's lesson, God instructed him to gather 70 elders at the tabernacle. They would bear the burden of the people with him. Even after this assurance, Moses questioned God's ability to fulfill his promise to provide meat for all the multitude, a claim that seemed not quite credible. Although Moses was not a Although Moses was not a Bashan of faith at that moment and was properly rebuked, he nonetheless did what God said and gathered 70 elders at the tabernacle. These elders would assist Moses in providing spiritual leadership for the Israelites. They would not be able to do this in their own power. However, so they met with the Lord at the tabernacle to be equipped for the work ahead. So a lot of things are going on here. Moses was complaining. Um, the people were complaining. All they had was this heavenly manna. That in of itself is, it never ceases to amaze me that people would be complaining about the fresh baked bread that God had provided. Um, if you can, just for a second, think about your favorite role. Think about your favorite, you know, dinner roll or, you know, hoagie roll or whatever, baked bread, biscuits, whatever. And whether that's from your mom or from your grandmom or from your favorite, you know, uh, bakery or whatever it is, those rolls or bread or whatever it is that you like had nothing on the stuff that God had prepared from heaven. These these were heavenly rolls. These weren't your mama's biscuits. And people were complaining about that. So as so much so that they murmured and said they ate fish back when they were in slavery. Right? So here you have a people that, you know, time and time again are complaining, complaining, complaining. And it's it's just shocking to me. I don't want to glaze over that. So they're they're complaining about what they're eating although God has provided for them. Moses was a little burdensome with the load, right? So we see a lot of whining, a lot of complaining. So God here is now listening to Moses and he's going to answer him by giving him some uh, help, some spiritual help, right? So that's why we have these 70 elders, but they weren't equipped to help Moses, right? Because Moses wasn't equipped. God equipped Moses. That should tell us that none of us are able to do God's work absent of the power of his Holy Spirit and absent of God's preparation for us. Um, that should bring us some joy in that knowing that he's not going to send us to do a task or assign us a task that we are incapable of accomplishing because he's going to give us what we need. Right now, notice I said he's not going to send us or assign us. It doesn't mean that you may not take on something that he didn't assign for you to do. And that doesn't guarantee that you're going to be successful in that. 
we're talking about God assigning you a task. So God is giving Moses the help he needs by way of the 70 elders who he has to prepare before they are able to spiritually provide him that assistance. And he's going to address their complaints about these heavenly roles. Let's keep going. The 70 elders prophesied. When the 70 elders were gathered together, the Lord descended in the cloud that hovered above, speaking to Moses and imparting to the elders of Israel the spirit who was on Moses. The wording here does not suggest the power of the spirit on Moses was reduced. It simply means that the same spirit who was on Moses was now residing on the 70 elders as well. There will be no competition or disunity between Moses and the elders because the same spirit empowered them all. Right. God's spirit is not in competition with one another. <laughs> God's spirit cosigns each other. Right. The spirits are, are subject to each other because they're of the same thing. Right. No house divided can stand. God is not going to, you know, empower one with the spirit and that spirit that Holy Spirit be in competition with someone else, right? Those things that are uh, manifested that don't seem to be connection or or flowing, that's of us. That's not of God's spirit. That's sometimes our, uh, you know, our own self pride, ambitions, whatever you want to call it, that conflicts. God does his stuff decent and in order, right? So... It says here, the result of the spirits coming upon the elders was that they began to prophesy. The text does not provide specific details as to what type of prophecy or prophetic activity took place. And the Bible scholars are not in unison as to what they actually occurred. What can be understood with clarity is that it was some type of outward behavior that was identifiable to the people as a work of the spirit of God. And that's important. I say that sometimes we don't get lost in the weeds. Um, we don't know what they were prophesying about. Evidently, it doesn't list it. And it just said that some of the biblical scholars around the world are not in unison about what they were prophesying about. But quite frankly, it's insignificant because they were prophesying something that the people needed to hear. And I know this because God's spirit is the one that allowed them to prophesy. So sometimes we can accept the word just for what it is in life. We don't need to know every nook and cranny detail of everything, right? Accept it because it's God's word. Um, and the fact that it's happening sometimes, it is meant to happen for our good. That can be applied to a lot of things in life. Um, and this is, you know, kind of sidebar, but uh, sometimes we may wonder why things happen. Sometimes we may wonder after we've prayed for something, it happened just the opposite and, you know, you kind of want to know, well, God, I, I kind of asked for something totally different. Why did this happen? Sometimes it's not expedient for us to know why it happened. Just accept that it happened and know that if you prayed for it earnestly and you you hoped that whatever your prayer would, was would be the uh, to the betterment of your outcome and it didn't happen, that must mean that God has something better. That must mean that another alternative was better than the one you prayed for. Right. If all things are are work together for our good, for them that love the Lord. Right. To them that are called according to his purpose. Right. Romans 8 and 28. And we know that all things work together. Right. For the good. If something happened and it wasn't necessarily apparent for your good, then we just have to know and believe that 
what God has for me, his alternative or his plan is better than my alternative, I'll say. Right. We'll switch that around. His plan is better than what I alternatively alternatively had planned for myself. So we don't know what they were prophesying about, uh, but we do know it was evident of the spirit of God. It was easily identifiable. Right. Because they could identify it. It says whatever it was the elders were doing, it was clear that it was far from the typical human behavior. It wasn't of themselves. Right. This event points towards forward to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost on those believers who were gathered in Jerusalem after the ascension of Jesus. And that's found in Acts 2 verses 1 to 4. The fact that God was at work in those in the Israelite elders was obvious to those who witnessed the event and shows that God was in complete control of this situation. The prophetic activity subsided soon after it began, did not cease, and Numbers 11 and 25 can be rendered, did not do it again. But it was enough to give evidence that the spirit who was at work in Moses was now at work in the 70 elders. Again, we don't know what they prophesied about, but we have proof that it wasn't of themselves. And whatever it was, it was what God wanted them to hear because it was the same spirit that was upon Moses, right? Let's keep going. Eldad and Medad prophesy. It says that although the 70 appointed elders were told to gather at the tabernacle, two of them, Eldad and Medad, were still in the camp when the spirit of the Lord came upon the elders. The reason they remained in the camp is not given in the text, but no disciplinary action is recorded to have been administered for their failure to join the others. Instead of being disciplined or chastised, these two men received the same spirit inside the camp, the same as the same as those did who were gathered at the tabernacle. The fact that they were not at the tabernacle did not exclude them from the blessing of the empowerment of the spirit of God. That's major. The fact that they were not at the tabernacle did not exclude them from the blessing of the empowerment of the spirit of God. That's major. That tells me that it's not necessarily where you are physically. It could be the condition of your heart spiritually. And God has the ability to reach out and touch you no matter where you are, whether you're in the tabernacle safe or whether you're at your lowest of lows in the corner in the alley by yourself trapped somewhere. Right. You are never out of reach of God's spirit and doesn't say that they were doing something wrong or that they didn't listen. We don't know why they weren't where they were supposed to be. But that's insignificant. Again, that's getting into the weeds. What I would like to say is let's let's bring it to the forefront. Sometimes we're out of place. We're out of line with where God has instructed us to be. Right. But we see here God's grace and his mercy can still reach out and have his Holy Spirit rest upon us no matter where we are. We could be, you know, in a corporate office. We could be homeless on the street. We could be deployed in war in a battlefield. Or we could be lying in our sickbed in the hospital. Doesn't matter where we are, God's blessing can reach out and touch us. Um, despite where he tells us we should be, sometimes we're out of place. So thankfully, God's mercy and his goodness and his, and his ability to send and dispatch his Holy Spirit, it has no boundaries. Nowhere that we can't be uh, have his spirit descended upon us. Think about that. We're not always in the right space. 
mentally, spiritually, and physically. We're not always in the right space. Sometimes we get caught maybe in a compromising situation, but God's spirit is still able to permeate permeate those situations and get to us wherever we are, right? It says here, just as the other 68 elders were prophesying at the tabernacle, Eldad and Medad also prophesied in the camp. There was no difference of the administration of the spirit or the administration of the prophetic gift they received. All 70 prophesied in unison. Think about that. That right there is a miracle because they were prophesying in unison, even though they were not in the physical area of the rest of the uh, prophets, of the rest of the, the elders. But they were still prophesying in unison, right? I would imagine that means a consistent message or it was still evident uh, of the same same spirit, right? Let's keep going. Joshua protest against the prophesying. Because the prophetic activity taking place through Eldad and Medad, it was very evident that something unusual was happening with them. Additionally, since this activity was occurring in the camp among the people, it was clearly seen by many people in the community. Since the people were not sure what was going on, confusion and unrest set in. A young, unidentified man saw how Eldad and Medad were behaving, and his first and perhaps natural instinct was to report it. This young man ran and told Moses what was going on with the elders and now the prophets. This movement of the spirit gave evidence that God was at work in these men's lives and validated that their authority was from him. Upon hearing about the activities of Eldad and Medad, however, Joshua pleaded with Moses to make them stop. To him, apparently their absence from the tabernacle indicated that they were not acting according to God's plan. Too often, we want to stop what we do not understand without trying to understand why a particular event is taking place. So because it was unknown what was going on at first, it was a little bit of confusion. It didn't seem proper to Joshua's intellect because they weren't with the rest of the elders. He asked Moses to shut it down. And I'm not going to necessarily beat up Joshua, because that's kind of how we all are. But I will say you can't stop God's plan. Um, and thankfully, Moses, who evidently had the spirit upon him as well, realized that this was a part of the plan. And, and he, he even goes on to say, you know, I wish that God would have more people prophesy. Right. So evidently it was something positive that was going on here. Um, but we got to be realizing that sometimes we're not going to understand all of God's methods and his ways. We're not going to stand any of them sometimes unless he reveals it. But we got to be willing to accept what's going on um, and not necessarily try to circumvent God's plan. And, I, you know, I don't know what Joshua was on his mind. Maybe he thought this was the best thing, but clearly he was. Uh, out of pocket and 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 wrong in this assumption, right? Um, it says, unfortunately, this happens even in the church today. Sometimes the Holy Spirit moves in a unique way in a person's life, but we are quick to dismiss it as zeal without knowledge. Mm. Word says we have the very zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, right? While we must be diligent to follow the teaching of God's word and its proper application. We must also be careful not to discourage those who are seeking to follow the Lord. 
They might need instruction and correction at times, but we not we must not be so tied to our traditions. Let's say that again. They might need instruction and correction at times, but we must not be so tied to our traditions that we reject any work or ministry that does not neatly fit with them. To do so might make us guilty of quenching the spirit. That's in First Thessalonians five nineteen. I was always taught growing up. If you don't understand something as it pertains to God's business, um, you know, you see somebody have the Holy Spirit in church, you don't understand, you know, why they're shouting or, 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 you know, seems as though they may have passed out or, you know, things are, are happening and you don't understand it. The worst thing you can do is to try to make fun of it or stop it. Pray and ask God to bless the situation or ask God to enlighten your understanding. You don't know what God is dealing with that person or through that person. Um, don't quench the spirit. That is deadly. Uh, God's Holy Spirit is very special and we are to reverence it. Um, and Joshua, again, I, I don't know his mindset here, but it was something unusual. He wasn't understanding it. It seemed to be apart from where the other 68 were. So his first refuge was to ask the leader to shut it down, um, not realizing that this was obviously a part of God's plan. Moses' refusal. Moses inquired as to why Joshua demanded that Eldad Medad be stopped from prophesying. He surmised that it was because Joshua was so devout to him that he saw these two men as trying to compete for Moses' position of authority. I'm going to stop right there. We got to be devoted to God. There's nothing wrong with supporting God's people, but our ultimate devotion is to God. We don't serve the man, right? We aid the man's servant or the woman's servant, but we serve God. And Joshua was, you know, albeit probably trying to, to you know, be loyal to Moses, looking out for him, but he was probably, uh, or not probably, he was as wrong as East is from the West. Uh, it says here, Joshua devote, Joshua's devotion to Moses is commendable on one level, but it's also dangerous to be so committed to human leadership that we cannot see the Lord any longer. Uh, it is ultimately God whom we follow, not man. God puts human leaders over us, but they too are followed or to follow the Lord, not displace him. Moses stated that he wished everyone could prophesy the way Eldad and Medad did. Um, and that the elders were, and what the elders were prophesying. Moses did not see this as an affront to his leadership. He knew what God had called him to do and also understood that God was in control of the entire operation. I think sometimes we panic because we lose perceived control. Uh, at least I know I do. And when it seems like it's chaotic, it's getting out of hand, it's uncomfortable. We got to realize that it's always out of our hand. We just have perceived control. It's really not control. We just feel like we have it. So we give us this false hope that we have it. God controls everything. And the sooner we realize that it's in his hands, uh, the better we are and the more relaxed we can be in a state of what may appear to be confusion to others. Right. Uh, it says here. 
he was grateful that the spirit fell on these 70 men and longed for it to happen to everyone in the camp instead of a select few. Right. He said, man, I wish God did it more. God sends quail to the people. A divinely ordered wind brought an enormous amount of quail into the Israelite camp quite suddenly. If anyone wondered whether or not God could provide the food for such a large multitude, this definitely settled the issue. The massive amount of quail God sent by the wind fell to the camp, making it rather easy for the people to gather them for food. They did not have to hunt for their game. Instead, God brought the game to them. The quail surrounded the camp on all sides up to about a day's journey away. 12 to 15 miles. The quail were piled up two cubits, three feet high, making this an enormous provision from the Lord. So let's think about this for a second. On all sides, about a day's journey out. So that's 12 to 15 miles on all sides, two to three high worth of bird. That's a lot of yard bird. And it's, it's, God is so powerful and, and so all-knowing. He knew that the people probably doubted his provision. So he he sent so much quail, you don't even know what to do with all this quail. That's how much quail he sent them. And it's too which is amazing because you know God had continued to show them time and time again. You know, you would have thought from the Red Sea crossing, you would have thought from the plagues in Egypt, you would have thought. From, you know, all the miracles and the ways that he's delivered them from enemies that they wouldn't have had any doubt. But again, not to beat them up. That's kind of how we are today. You know, you would have thought from the last accident God saved us from. You would have thought from the last time he delivered us from, from something. You would have thought from the last time he got us out of a financial situation that we would, you know, not question him. But for whatever it is, I guess it's just a human flaw that we're incapable of fully depending on God. Um, so he shows us <laughs> 12 to 15 miles out, a day's journey worth of quail, three feet high. You didn't even have to hunt for him. He provided it. God sends the plague. The people were delighted to see such a bountiful supply of quail all around them, going presumably as far as the eye could see. They spent the next two days gathering their unexpected delicacy to their heart's content with each person gathering about at least 10 homers, about 60 bushels. The homer was the Israelites' largest unit of dry measurement. Some of the meat would have been prepared to eat right away. It seems the rest was spread out on the ground to be dried and salted for later consumption, which was a common Egyptian method of preserving fish and fowl. This shows there was far too much to eat in one sitting. The entire camp had enough quail to feed them that day and far beyond. As the people began to chew the meat, even before they had swallowed and digested it, God's anger came against them. His judgment came upon them as swiftly as the quail did. Immediately, God sent a plague that struck the people down as they ate from their bounty. This may catch the reader by surprise, but we must keep in mind that God was still displeased by the people's incessant complaining and their often expressed desire to return to Egypt. They had despised God's plan and provision and therefore despised God himself. Some say that time heals all wounds, but time does not soften the punishment that comes from unconfessed sin. 
Only repentance does. And there is no record of repentance from the people. So as fast as the quail came, God struck him with a plague, took some of them out of here. Because he was displeased with their grumbling and complaining. And if you don't get anything else from this lesson, I hope that you get this. Try not to complain when God blesses us. Try not to complain when he delivers us. Try not to forget what he has brought us from. Because, you know, I, I, I would imagine that's sin. If you are not thankful or grateful for God, what God has done for you. And here, clearly, God got tired of it. He got tired of them murmuring and complaining and wanting, comparing their lifestyle as free men to their lifestyle when they were enslaved by the Egyptians. And, you know, God got tired of it and he dealt with them as a result of it. So try not to complain. Um, graves of craving. This the place where the Israelites were encamped was renamed Kibroth Hataf, which means graves of craving. The strong craving that drove them and led to their complaints against the Lord resulted in a number of deaths. We are not told how many died, but it seems likely that the instigators of the complaining, those most motivated by their fleshly cravings, were the hardest hit. They got what they wanted, but they paid a heavy price. There is no mention in the text that anyone had ple had paused to thank the Lord for his bountiful provision. Right. We saw them eating. They was preparing it. But we don't see anywhere where they gave thanks or they made an offering. Right. They appear to have dived right into the feast. Let's get this bird cooked. Greedily satisfying their appetites. Greed and selfishness are powerful motivators, but they always fall outside of God's will for us. They were more interested in the immediate enjoyment of the meat than acknowledging God's goodness or by being his people. That's that's important. They were more interested in the immediate enjoyment of the meat than in acknowledging God's goodness or by being his people. Sometimes we're so shallow minded for the right now, we don't see the long haul. And, you know, we have to be mindful that we're grateful for things. We're grateful for God's provision. Sometimes get to a quiet room and reflect on your whole life where God has brought you from. Think about it. Think about where you are right now, what you have right now and how you got to this point. And I can guarantee you there's not a, a period in your life that you can say you achieved or obtained or got to without acknowledging how God strategically moved something out of your way, strategically lifted you, strategically gave you just what you needed. Sometimes we got to be grateful and acknowledging that. Um, get ready to get out of here. There comes a time when God has enough of grumbling and complaining. Such an attitude reveals unbelief in the heart, which is a serious offense against the Lord. What reason do we have for not trusting in him? He has never failed to fulfill his word. He has never lied to anyone, nor can he do so. There's nothing wrong with having a strong craving. The problem is when the object of our craving is something other than the Lord himself or his will for our lives. The people of Israel treated God like a hateful enemy, not a loving father. They refused to remember the many times he had protected, delivered and fed them in the wilderness before. They especially forgot how he brought them out of Egypt and delivered them. 
The grace of God can be seen again in Numbers 11.35 as the survivors of the plague resumed their journey, this time traveling to Hazaroth, a site of uncertain location in the wilderness. What is significant about this verse is that the journey resumed in spite of the judgment that God had just brought upon the people. Be careful to avoid craving the things that are not of God. We all have a part of us that wants to go our own way and pursue our own desires. If we feed an appetite for destruction, however, we will certainly be destroyed. As followers of Jesus Christ, it is important to crave the things that will satisfy our souls and move us closer to him. Above all, we must remember the admonition, the admonition of in Philippians 4 and 6 to make all our requests with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. I pray that this message found you where you are. We're going to go over our practical points. And these are key takeaways that you should have gained from the lesson and hopefully are applying in your life. Let's see here. I can't seem to find it in here. We'll talk about it. Today's aim. The facts were to show that although Israel failed God time after time, the Lord always proved himself completely faithful to his word, thus providing the ultimate example of faithfulness. One of the principles are to realize that no matter how circumstances may look or feel, God is always faithful to his people and his promises. And the application to accept the challenge to give a life of gratefulness based upon God's unconditional love and consistently demonstrated faithfulness. I pray that this lesson has found you where you're at. May God bless you. Heaven smile upon you. See y'all next week. Actually, in a couple weeks, but you know what I mean. Have a blessed day. Good morning, good morning, good morning, New Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church of Newark, Delaware, where the place where love abides, where our pastor is Dantel A. Hall's senior. Uh, my name is Deacon Dylan, and you are live with us on our Sunday School Digest. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Today's date is May 8th, 2022, and we are on lesson number 10 in our Union Gospel Press Sunday School books. Uh, the lesson title today is Our Heavenly Dwelling. Our Heavenly Dwelling. It comes from uh, Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Uh, the place is coming from Macedonia, and the time period is probably about 56 AD. And this is the Apostle Paul uh, composing this letter to the Corinthians. Uh, again, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Uh, enjoy your mothers today. Uh, cherish them, love them. Uh, your wives, your sisters, your aunties, your daughters even that are mothers. Uh, let's celebrate all mothers today because they are very special. 
God knows I had a special mom. Uh, so let's keep on going before I get all jacked up early in the lesson. No, just joking. Okay. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses one. For we know that if our heavenly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given us unto the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Amen. I'm going to go right to our introduction and read it uh, because I believe it sets the tone for the whole purpose of this lesson or one of the main purposes of the lesson. And the introduction reads, the suffering we go through in life can cause discouragement and frustration. Even for the most spiritual person among us, the pain is real. Paul was a man familiar with suffering, and his suffering caused him to think about the hope of the resurrection and God and God's promises of eternal life. Remembering the promises of God was the key to Paul's endurance, even though he admits that his body was wasting away. Remembering the promises of God was the key to Paul's endurance. Uh, says for Paul, it was a matter of perspective. And I want you to keep that word in the forefront of your mind throughout this lesson. It was a matter of perspective. The outer self was wasting away, but the inner self was being renewed day by day. Satan tries to use suffering to destroy us, but we need not fear his malice. Paul referred to the sufferings of this life as light and momentary, for they do not compare to the glory that lies ahead of us. If we suffer for Christ, then we will be glorified with Christ. This caused Paul to look ahead and focus on the eternal instead of the temporal. We got to remember that as a Christian, we should have perspective if we have one thing among faith, among joy, all those other things. But we should not look at life how the everyday person looks at life because of our uh, our, our perspective. Right. Um, 
there should be something different about how we view our trials and tribulations that we go through that the same person laying in the next hospital bed over from us, unless they have Christ, it should be viewed differently. Um, not saying that nobody wants to be laid up, not saying that anybody wants to have pain, not saying that anybody wants to have affliction, but it should not be the same. Uh, it should not be viewed the same as a person who does not have that hope that lies within, right? That only we can get by having a relationship with Jesus Christ as our personal savior. I learned something in this lesson today and hopefully I can bring it to the forefront. Um, it was very key. It was, it was really nice. I like how they slid it in there. It was really nice, but let's get to it. Longing for immortality. It's the first subsection. Uh, hope in the face of death. Paul references the earthly house of this tabernacle. In case you didn't know, a tabernacle is a tent, and it refers to our earthly body, okay? Just as a tent is temporary, uh, it's a temporary dwelling place. You're not, if you go camping, the goal is not to stay in that tent um, for a lifetime. Unfortunately, there are those that do live in tents. Um, but traditionally speaking, you need something more permanent to reside in. So a tent, if you're looking at it from a standpoint of a tent, is a temporary dwelling that is how we should kind of look at our earthly bodies. We're here temporarily. Um, one day our body will go back to the to the dust from whence it came. And our spirit person, our spirit being lives on. Um, at that moment of death, though, things are different for the non-believer versus the believer. And that's what Paul is telling us to hone in on. Uh, at that moment of death, God is not taking anything away from us but he is giving us something new and better paul was so sure of this promise from god that he speaks about it in the present tense paul is speaking about it as if like hey it's it's going down not not it will go down or not that i hope it does go down paul's assurance in the word of god because that's what he's relying on to draw from his strength is so is so uh concrete that he it says he speaks about it in the present tense he states that we have a building of god not that we will have a building of god right we have a building of god eternal life does not begin when we get to heaven eternal life begins at the moment of conversion and that's something to remember um it's just it's just laying in store for you it doesn't mean that it's yet to be constructed it's laying in store for you uh, metaphorically speaking, that is the moment you accept Christ, you are a new creature. You're a new being in Christ. Um, and those promises are extended to you when you have a relationship with him. Of course, the key being you must have a relationship with Jesus Christ as your personal savior. That's why we meet. That's the whole purpose of everything we do. Right. If you listen to these uh, podcasts from various teachers. If you go to church, if you tune in on YouTube and Facebook and you follow a gazillion pastors on Instagram and you listen to a gazillion inspirational messages and you do your word of days and all that stuff. If you do all of that and you haven't accepted Christ as your personal savior, you're just being inspired. You have not allowed the word of God to change you. 
That is the whole purpose, uh, that we may be in a rightful relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. That's the whole crux of the Gospels. That's the whole purpose of our being. So I'm going to challenge everybody that listens to this. Um, Have a conversation with someone this week about if they have a relationship, if they know Jesus Christ and the pardon of their sins, if they have accepted him as their savior, do they have salvation? Because we skirt around this topic so much and it's the most important conversation we can have. Um, And it doesn't matter who it is, man. White, black, green, yellow, female, male, young person, old person, have that conversation. Because that is the whole purpose of why we're doing this. Ultimately, we want to please God, but you can't please him unless you know him. It is impossible for without faith, it is impossible to please God. Think about that. All your volunteering, all your 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 good deeds, your good Samaritans, all those things. If we're doing all those absent of having a rightful relationship with Christ, we are not pleasing God. So that's the whole purpose of this. We so that we can have a heavenly dwelling to go to. You won't have a heavenly dwelling unless you have a rightful relationship with him through Jesus Christ. No man can come into the Father but by me. That's what the word of God says. I didn't say it. I just repeated it. Let me keep going. I just wanted to put that in there because that's the whole purpose of why we're doing this. This is not uh, inspirational messaging just for your edification. It is inspirational and it is a good message, but it's for a change in your life through Jesus Christ. It's a purpose, right? Hope amid groaning, a groaning. Paul moves from the promise of eternity to acknowledge that presently we groan. What is he referring to? Certainly we groan as we feel the effects of sin in our bodies as we age. I experienced that. I just turned 40. Uh, As we age and when we are in pain. But the groaning here likely extends even further to groaning and grieving over sin in the world. All you need to do is just turn on the news and sometimes the atrocities Um, I don't know about you, but as far as me, it just aches me. It it irks me. It, it annoys me. I see some things that goes on and it's like, you know, somebody raped and killed an 80 year old grandma. Somebody did something horrific to a newborn baby. You know, we have serial killers, serial rapists. It is so much sin that it, it really grieves your spirit it makes you groan you know sometimes you see something or you'll pass somebody and you'll immediately have compassion on that person and you can't give you know money to everybody you can't feed all the hunger sometimes you just got to really stop and pray for that person and say lord have mercy on them because you can see the reflection or the effects i should say of sin not that you're judging anybody right but you can see the effects when you see somebody strung out on drugs that's not necessarily the Lord's will. That's the effects of sin. Right. So you see that and you have compassion and it makes your spirit groan. Um, and and Paul is, is trying to give us. Well, what does the next section say? He's trying to give us some hope. Uh, and we got to remember to rely back on the word of God for that hope. 
It says Paul did not Paul does not run from the fact that he struggles. I'm sorry. Paul does not run from the fact that the struggles of life are hard. He left them. He felt them, too. While we are in this earthly bodies, we will experience painful and tragic situations. Paul states again that while we are in this earthly body or the tabernacle, we groan and are burdened. We long to be freed, but not merely to die and escape our present body. We long to be clothed upon to be given the eternal resurrected body that has been promised to us in Christ. You know, uh, Kurt Franklin had a song back in the day and it was, um, uh, why do we sing? And if you remember that part of the song, and it was like, uh, and when the song is over, and we've all said amen, and he's like, and we all said amen, and your heart keeps on singing, and the song never ends, right? And and it goes on to say, like, if somebody asks you, is this just a show? You know, the the whole point that I got of that is. We are at the moment that we are having a spiritual connection with God. That that is the Holy Spirit is resting upon us, is moving, and we feel so good. At that moment, man, we're longing to be closer with God. We're like, man, Lord, if you came back right now, this would be all right with me. Right? And that's not to say that you you hate life, but it's like you you long to be in a a continual fellowship with God. Um, But that doesn't take away Monday morning when things of life start attacking you. You know, and that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that we're not just trying to speed through life to get to the end so that we can get to heaven. We shouldn't be doing that. But we, we long to be clothed in our heavenly bodies when we get little tastes, little glimpses of, man, you know, heaven must be like this, you know, just a little touch from God and, and it sends you in overdrive. Right. Um, at least that's that's what I, I take from that. We should be actively present and pleased with the, the, the life that God gives us. We should be not just sitting around looking at the clock. Oh, God's coming back. God's coming back. But we should be working up until that point. And work includes um you know, living a life, right? Uh, you have to uh, get out and be in the world, but not of the world, right? Walking by faith. The word of God is a sufficient guarantee of our hope in heaven. But to take it even further, God has also given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of his promise. God does not require us to live in this earthly body without divine assistance, So he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us. This part was pretty cool um, that I learned in this. I never really picked this up. But if you look at the verse where it says, um, let me see it. It talks about the earnest. Here it is. Now he that hath wrought us, verse number five. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given us the earnest of the spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. But the earnest of the spirit, and it, it made reference to an earnest being like a deposit. And I know of that uh, most people, um, most adults know 
if you've ever bought a house or anything like that, if you're bidding on something or you, you want to put a, a proposal in or, uh, you know, you're going to have a general contract to come over and do some work. Most of the time they're going to ask for an earnest money deposit. And that just means that as the person, uh, as the as a buyer or as a customer, you are pledging that you will fulfill whatever the contract obligations are, you're going to pay the rest for the service, right? You're going to make sure that you go through with the transaction and looking at it in that sense, how about this guy gives us the earnest uh, deposit of the Holy spirit. And what does that mean? It gives us the assurance, right? As the provider, cause he's not the customer, he's the provider, but it gives us the assurance as the provider that he's going to have you covered, you know, um, the, the, oh man, thank you, God. You know, when you have insurance coverage, they give you a card that you can walk around with. Typically it has your name. It has your group number. It may have, um, some codes that reference what plan you have, what type of coverage you have, Etc. You know, I just got out of the hospital and I had to present my insurance card before I can get coverage uh, or medical attention. I think of it as God, you know, he doesn't give us a card, but he gives us the Holy Spirit to carry it around so that when we find ourselves in trouble, when we find ourselves in need of coverage, man, we pull out that card and it reminds us that, hey, we are covered by the blood of Jesus. There's no sickness that won't, you're not covered under his plan, right? There's no, there's no in network or out of network, no matter wherever you go, the coverage plan that we have with God through Jesus Christ is effective, right? You're never going to be denied coverage, right? There's no, uh, pre-existing conditions that will preclude you from getting coverage under Jesus Christ's plan, right? Because that coverage guarantees from the provider, it guarantees that no matter the situation, I've got you covered, right? So that's what the Holy Spirit is for us. It's our earnest. It's that earnest money deposit to let the the the, the other folks know that this transaction, this agreement or this covenant uh, will be carried out to fruition. Amen. Uh, I hope you got that. Um, that wasn't in my notes or anything. That was just uh, something that God gave me. Amen. Hope you got it. Uh, let's keep on going. So we're talking about the earnest is the pledge, usually money that guarantees the terms of a contract. And I, I kind of went over this already. When making a large financial purchase, the buyer will often make an earnest payment called a down payment. And it guarantees the transaction uh, is also a good faith measure. Good faith measure. Think about that, though. It won't be a good faith measure if you don't have any faith. Right. You have to have faith in order to get the earnest deposit for good faith measure. Again, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So when you're out trying to to accomplish this, this Christian challenge this week, try to talk to people about establishing some faith in God. Tell them to try it out. Tell them to read their Bible and ask God for enlightenment. Pray with them even. Don't say, I will pray for you. Say, do you mind if we pray right now? Do you mind if I show you a scripture right now? Because that's the most important conversation we could be having. Um, 
you know, I really love my Sixers. I love my Eagles. I like sports. I like certain foods. I like the vacation. I love my family. You know, I like talking about cars. But if you can have an open conversation about all those things, not saying that they're not important. Some of them are, but others are clearly not. If you can have conversations about those things, you should be able to broach the topic about, hey, man, where you go to church at? Hey, have you ever accepted Christ as your personal savior? Okay, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. All it means is that you are acknowledged that Jesus Christ existed and that he died for the sins of the world. You don't have to understand it. Try to believe it. Pray and ask God to come into your heart. Begin to read and work towards um, your faith, you know, building the foundation of your faith. You're never going to believe it if you don't ever read it. You got to read it. You got to think about it. You got to talk about it. And that's all it really is. Just just planting some seeds and, and God to give the increase. Um, but let's keep going. Joy in God. We're almost done. Although Paul was familiar with suffering and persecution, he remains quite joyful in his tone. This is important. Let me say this real quick. Please don't be the Debbie Downer Christian. Every time somebody talks to you, you just, oh, Lord, this is going on. Oh, this is going on. I, you know, this is just me. It's not in the book. Or maybe it is, but I just want to put a caveat on this. God gives us joy. We should try to resemble that. Doesn't mean you're not going to be in pain. Doesn't mean you're not going to have bad, horrible, sad things happening to you. Just try to have that P word, perspective. Try to have perspective. Always look at it glass half full instead of you half empty glass half full. Look at Job. Look at Job, man. He said, though he slay me, yet will I bless him, right? Yet will I serve him. The bottom line is things were happening to Job and he never lost sight of what was important. God is in fully control and he's able to restore me if it's his will. And if not, I'm still going to bless his name. So just try to have that joy. Um, the reason for this joyful spirit is that the hope rested in the Lord. Think about that. The reason for this joyful spirit is that his hope rested in the Lord. Because his hope was found in the Lord, he was always able to be confident. If you put your hope in your all your chips down on you, you're going to fail. Because we are flawed individuals you can't you know people say oh i bet on myself i pulled me up by my bootstraps all that type of rhetoric man listen anytime somebody give you some praise say thank you to god be the glory because that's really who it all goes to god gave me the strength to do this god gave me the intuition to, to think about this business plan god gave me the the ability to to make these moves and, and earn this money or whatever the case may be god gave me the favor to just be in the right place at the right time so i can get these promotions whatever it is right is you have to throw god some praise and in doing that i guarantee you you'll be kind of conditioning your mind to have that perspective that no matter what God is my joy. He's my strength. He's my rock. And I, and I truly believe God appreciates that because in you doing that, you're reflecting the love of God in your life by constantly uh, uh, deflecting any praise for self and just giving it rightfully to him. Right. It says the fact that we experience 
some sense of apartness right now does not mean that God is not with us. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Christ ascended to heaven, he did not leave us alone. The indwelling Holy Spirit means that God lives in us. We are never apart from God in a sense of being separated from his presence or deprived of his provision or protection. No matter where I am, think about that insurance card. I have coverage. I can go to Djibouti, and that's a place in Africa. I can go to Djibouti uh, and pull out my insurance card, and I've got coverage. I'm using the insurance card to reflect, you know, my relationship with Jesus Christ. I can go somewhere in a faraway land. Doesn't matter. I've got coverage, right? That's the Holy Spirit comforting the comforter. You know, that's his that's his protection. That's his provision following me, mentoring me, guiding me, keeping me no matter where I go. I'm never outside of his reach. Um, being with God, the deepest desire of the child of God is to be with him. There is nothing that can satisfy us like being in his presence. That is why we are able to be confident now as we go through personal tragedies and the hard times of life. We know that there is something much better that lies ahead if we persevere in faith. That's having perspective. You won't be able to see ahead unless you have perspective, right? You'll only be looking at right now, what was me? And listen, I'm not saying that I don't need to know this myself. We all need to remind ourselves of this, but you have to have that type of frame of mind, that, that mind frame. Um, tell you a quick story. I just got out of hospital a week or so ago. And when they transferred me to this different floor and I'm not, I'm not patting myself on the back here. Let me say this. I just want to let you understand where I'm coming from. When they transferred me to another floor, it was like four in the morning. I was going upstairs and the nurses were in the hallway and, um, they greeted me. They was like, hello, how you doing? How are you? And I said, I'm blessed. And the lady said, you're blessed. What? Oh man, we need more patients like you. Now, I was hurting, uh, I was tired, I was annoyed because I wanted to get out of the hospital. Um, a lot of moving parts going on. But at the end of the day, I am blessed. And that's how I felt. Um, and I think it shocked the lady, clearly, because probably not many people that are admitted in the hospital are going to tell you that they're blessed. But there should be something different about me as a patient and you as a patient or you going through tribulation and me going through tribulation if we say we have a relationship with Christ. And that's not patting myself on the back. We should just be trying to really, really uh, show forth God's mercy and his grace in everything we do, despite the fact that we laid up on a gurney with IVs in you and all this other nonsense. The bottom line is we are blessed. We could have not existed any longer, right? Um, I could be laying on the, hospital, on the operation table instead of the hospital bed. There's so many per- different things to look at from a perspective that I, w- I was blessed. Now, I was hurting at that moment and I was frustrated and I was annoyed and I was ready to go home and all these other different things. But what good would that have been to complain to this lady and say that? She's used to hearing that. I bet you she's not used to hearing somebody say she's blessed or that they're blessed. So the bottom line is the Holy Spirit is with you no matter the situation you're in. And that can be kind of scary, too. But in this sense, 
God doesn't stop or cease to dwell with you uh, because we're in our earthly bodies. He still gives us a measure of his spirit. All right. All right. It says, I want to go over this as well. Being a Christian does not mean we put on a phony smile, act spiritual around others and pretend that we are never hurt or cry. There is no comparison with being with the Lord. But because of his promises, we look forward to the day when we can shed this old tent and we are living in and enter the internal dwelling God has prepared for us. It's important that we be genuine. We're human beings, right? You can't just uh, put on a phony smile and all that stuff. But there should be something different about how we view life and our perspective, right? Ultimately, we're doing all this because we want to please God. That's the next section, aiming to please. No matter where we are, whether we are here on earth or living in heaven, our ambition remains the same. We want to please the Lord. And I'll say, I'll add to that. It's not scripture, so I can add to it. Uh, This is commentary. But I'll say that no matter our status in life, our ambition is to please God. Whether you're poor, whether you're rich, whether you have a family or whether you're single, um, whether you're in a good relationship or a bad relationship, you know, it doesn't really matter. Like those are things that we assign value to on earth. I'm not saying the families and stuff aren't good, but, you know, if you have a job making $10 an hour, our, our aim is still to please God. If you have a job making, you know, $500 an hour, our aim is still to please God. You know, don't let these external factors dictate your goal. That's having perspective. No matter where you are in life, physically, spiritually, doesn't matter. Our aim never changes. It's to please God. The only way you can do that is to follow his word. And, and show forth the joy in your life that he's given us, right? And have that conversation with others about why it is you're different, right? We're supposed to be making uh, believers, making disciples, right? Um, it says, we no longer seek to satisfy ourselves with whatever appeals to us. We would rather please the Lord. We do not do the things in order to get saved or to stay saved, but because of the fact that we are saved, right? You're not trying to do good works um, to get bonus credits. Sometimes you got to really check your motivation. You should be doing them because you love God and it's the right thing to do. You can't work your way to heaven, right? Um, but the works should kind of show that you're a believer. And if you're a believer, then that's where you'll find yourself. But it's not a matter of I'm going to I'm going to do more than the next person um, because I want to I want to show that I'm I'm doing this. We're do, everything we're doing should be to please God. That's our motivation. When we sing on the choir, it should be to please God. When we play an instrument, it should be to please God. When we usher, when we you know do the administrations of a deacon, um, even pastor, you've heard him say it. I'm trying to please God. If nobody says amen, he's going to try to please God, right? We're not doing it for a form and a fashion. Our motivation has to be to please God. Um, 
Let's keep going. We're at the last part. The judgment seat of Christ. Paul reminds us that believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, which means we will be judged for the way we have lived. The way we live our lives is important. What will be open for judgment is our conduct as Christians. Uh-oh. That means it's going to be inspection, right? We will be rewarded in heaven based on our works on earth. We will give account for how we served Christ. How can we serve him? By serving others. Jesus said that when we serve the least of these, we are also serving him. Likewise, if we fail to serve others, we fail to serve him. You'll find that in Matthew 25, 40 and 45. Um, Let's go over a couple of things and then we'll be out of here. Um, Practical points. Everything associated with this earthly life is temporary. Don't get caught into the weeds, guys and girls. It's all temporary. It's great if you can ascertain some things in life, but not at the expense of, you know, your relationship with Christ, not at the expense of loving and helping others because it's all temporary. The sufferings and the good thing about that part, the sufferings of this life cause uh, God's people to long for their eternal home. That is true. But remember, the suffering is temporary. If everything else is temporary, then the suffering is temporary, right? Especially for a child of God. Uh, Third practical point, the Holy Spirit gives us hope for eternal life in heaven. Remember, that's our earnest, our earnest deposit. That's our, uh, that's our reminder that we carry this, this coverage no matter where we go, right? Keep your, keep your coverage card active, right? Our hope in Christ frees us from the fear of death. I say that again. Our hope in Christ frees us from the fear of death. Fifth verse or fifth practical point. Whether we live or die, our aim should be to glorify the Lord. That's our goal. And the last practical point, our work for the Lord will be tested and rewarded. Without the test, you don't have a testimony. I pray that the word of God found you. That's our lesson for the day. Happy Mother's Day. May God be with you. I'll see you all next time.